this morning, though, we're going to talk about the collection. I don't want to start out by just showing something I grew up with and saw all the time. Let me bring that up at the end when you can't. Uh, those that are older in the faith. And I don't even know if you need to be older in the faith. Barbara, why is this humor to you? What, you've seen this probably all your life, right? Yes, except probably coming to late said the first time I had not seen it. Somewhere on the wall. And I remember that catching my attention right away. I grew up all my life was what are called the uh, hymnal board and the uh, attendance and collection board. Notice the detail the one on the right. Um, after every Sunday, uh, someone would post what the attendance was for that day or right after the service. Uh, they'd always have the, uh, the attendance for last Sunday, too. Remember that? Janet, uh, the attendance for last Sunday would always be there. The offering of today, in fact, I remember helping the elders count the contribution. I was a 12-year-old boy. They let me come back there. I'd read the checks off to them. They'd be writing down. I just make this a point of observation that these were fictions uh, in my life growing up and for many years. But they reflect a desire. They weren't anything bad at all. They, they reflect a desire to keep the congregation informed of how the church was doing uh, financially, how it was going with their attendance, to see if there were trends up and down, what might need to be addressed. And the hymn board was something to make sure everyone knew what song number to turn to back when we used those books. So the times have changed. Hymnal words are not really needed that much anymore. The songs are on the screen. Uh, but there may still be a need for attendance registers or offered registers, but others say maybe that's not something we want to focus on and maybe we don't want to give that kind of attention. So there's room for judgment, which will be a main part of the sermon today, which is simply considering the collection, understanding the role and responsibility. So questions that remain in the exact application of it. Uh, the New Testament uh, goes back 2,000 years. Uh, so even though there are some principles that are timeless concerning the use of the money, there are still judgment calls to be made by every generation on exactly how you do that, how do you spend it. Uh, COVID changed everything as far as how we collect it. Instead of things being physically put into a basket, all of a sudden we're putting things in on our phone, which was never done before. It would have been unheard of. Uh, so things change over time, but some things do not change. What we're trying to capture today is the things that do not change. Things that the apostles taught early churches concerning the use of their collected funds. And then we'll look at some things that kind of do change from generation to generation. How that we need to see that those things are always kind of elastic. They will change over time. There will have to be judgments. But then again, there are things that uh, do not change. We've been talking also about things that we do as a smaller church. One thing that's a unique blessing of the church here at uh, Lake Merced is that we have ample resources. That doesn't mean you're just loaded with cash. That's not what I'm saying. Or we just have extended amounts. But we probably have more resources than what's reflected in the number of our members. Usually churches of our size would just be probably getting by week to week and trying to avoid closure would not be able to support an evangelist and be struggling simply to meet their week-to-week -week need. We're not in that situation. We have a challenging situation, uh, one that brings a lot of good things our way, but we still have to navigate that, and everyone is part of that. But let's try to look at the foundation first of how we look at everything concerning money in the church. We'll look at two points. Here's the first thing. Churches have a responsibility to support 
evangelism and benevolence. We do find clearly in the New Testament churches have a responsibility to support evangelism with simply teaching the gospel. Evangelism sometimes is done outside of the community where someone might go to the mall, they might go to a college campus and, and teach there. But also the word evangelism or teaching also was used in the New Testament to talk about teaching that was done in-house or internally within the church, such as through Bible classes, preaching with the church. Both of them fell under the heading of evangelism. We also find churches involved in what, this is kind of an older word, but still a relevant word, benevolence. If someone is benevolent, that means they are giving, and benevolence is simply an umbrella term to talk about giving. We can simply talk about giving, we could probably use the word collection, but probably the word giving is the word we use the most, but sometimes it's assistance, um, whatever you want to call it. Benevolence is kind of the word that's been around for the longest. But these are the two areas that Scripture gives attention to in early churches where we find the apostles teaching on it, and we find churches practicing the principles they were taught. Let's look at both of them um, quickly, but in a meaningful way. Let's first look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, evangelism involves preaching and teaching. Well, in the case of someone preaching and teaching, usually there's a fair degree of time involved, simply either of the preparation of that teaching, such as preachers who spend most of the time working within the church, or if someone's going to go out into the community, to college campuses, to neighborhoods, to malls, to try to teach, to find the gospel. They're going to have to have the time to do that, and the time to take care of themselves and their family would be limited if they had a full-time, try to maintain a full-time job and preach and teach full-time. So what we'll find here in 1 Corinthians 9 is that the Apostle Paul speaking to the right of those that preach and teach to be supported financially by the collected funds of the church itself. They could even forego working entirely so they could devote a full-time um, effort to the preaching and teaching the gospel. Let's begin reading. We're just going to read this chapter. I don't want to just kind of piecemeal verses, but let's look at this chapter, and I want to look for Paul making the case that he has the right to be fully financially supported, but what's interesting in this text, he says, I choose not to exercise that right. And it becomes such a problem within the Corinthian church, which had a lot of problems, he simply said, I'm not going to exercise that right, but I do have it. And we'll see the establishment of the right for churches, in fact, the responsibility to support preachers and teachers so that they might use their time for teaching. Verse 1 beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Am I not seeing Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Let's just pause here for a moment. Verse 3. People within the Corinthian church are criticizing him. So he's kind of defending himself, even though he's an apostle. There's some that are simply causing trouble for him. And some are kind of saying, hey, well, he's not receiving any money. Okay, is he really a teacher? And I guess they saw... If you were really a teacher back then, you had to be receiving money. He, he's not doing that, but he's still being criticized. But in the process, he kind of shows 
that he could be receiving funds for what he's doing if he wanted to. Let's continue on verse 4. Now he gets... <clears throat> Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's Peter, verse 6. Or is it only I and Barnabas who do not have the right to work for a living? Who serves as a, a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing for it is written in the law of Moses? Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when farmers plow and thresh, they should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? That's a key verse, verse 12. An establishing verse that those who preach and teach have a right to receive financial support. Verse 12 again. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But then he says, verse 12, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those, and this is the key verse again, verse 12 or 14. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. <clears throat> Let me just read that again. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Just pausing here, he's making the point that if someone devotes their time fully to preaching and teaching, they have the right to be fully supported by the church to do so. So when Josh was here, just our closest example, he was fully supported by the church here to spend his time preaching and teaching. And this would be the biblical basis of doing so, and of other churches doing that. But then he says of himself, verse 15, but I've not used any of these rights. I'm not writing this in hope that you would do such things for me, but I'd rather die than have anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging, discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not misuse my rights as a preacher of the gospel. We'll just stop here. Paul's making the point that even though I had the right to receive money from you as a church, he said, I did not exercise that. You'll find Paul in the book of Acts at times made tents. That's what's his skill. He made tents. He supported himself financially sometimes. Other times he did receive money from a church. But in this case with Corinth, he didn't because he thought it would be a burden, but yet now he's being criticized for not taking any money. <laughs> and he's saying, what's going on here? But he makes the point that preachers have the right, verse 12 and 14 are key, to receive financial support. And that's why Joshua supported and preachers before him that were here full time. 
That's the biblical basis of it. Another verse, if you're taking notes, I didn't put up here, um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 through 20. Again, Philippians 4, 14 through 20. Paul talks about how the Philippian church helped him in his preaching and teaching by sending money to him. So sometimes preachers can be in another area and a church can send money to them to help them out. Here's the second main area for uh, church responsibility. That is benevolence. The first is evangelism and teaching as far as this. These are the two areas we find. The second is benevolence, which involves helping Christians in need. Benevolence involves helping Christians in need. Turn back to the book of Acts now. This is kind of always our foundational book, or it's the book where we see the earliest teaching about what churches uh, were told to do or what we find them doing per instruction. Notice what we find, we'll look at chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6, that there is a responsibility for Christians to take care of each other if a need was present. There was a responsibility of Christians to take care of each other in the church if there was a need present. Verse 42, Acts 2. The early church is the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had what? Anyone who had need. We're going to see that repeatedly in many passages. Okay, so here at the beginning... They recognize a sense of responsibility. Someone's in a destitute circumstance, and many early Christians, in fact, most, if not all at this point, were people that were Jewish, and many were kicked out of the synagogue. They weren't allowed to participate in business like they had to because they were seen by other Jewish people of having abandoned the faith. So many had lost their jobs. So here they rallied to each other's side. Uh, Some, even if they had property, they sold it to give to anyone who had need. The giving was to address a need. Now, this is important. We do not find in the New Testament a general command to just give to give. In every instance where church funds were collected or used, it was to address a specific biblically-based need or a need that had been instructed by the apostle. They weren't just a give to give. It was always when a need was present. We find that in the very first verse. Chapter 4 now, chapter 4, verse 32, the church is continuing to grow, but notice what Luke records here about they're helping each other. Verse 32, he says, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were, <clears throat> excuse me, there were no what? There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses, <clears throat> excuse me, sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had what? Need. Need. Notice here a Whenever you see things repeated in Scripture, that means there seems to be a pattern there that should be followed. 
says there were no needy persons among them. And people were selling even property to give to anyone who had need. So there wasn't just a general giving to be giving, and, but no one to give the money to. There were needs that were present, and they were giving as much as they needed to to meet those needs. Amen. All right, chapter 6 now. Notice here that there is a situation of need, and here's a good example of that specificity. There were some widows who came from a Hellenistic or Grecian background that apparently were being neglected in the distribution of funds to help them out. And remember, in the first century, there was no governmental support system uh, for widows. Uh, and it presumes here uh, there was no family members that were giving as they should, perhaps, to them. They were just in this destitute situation. But notice they addressed it. Verse 1, chapter 6. <clears throat> in those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Let's just pause here, verse 1. So here you have a little racial conflict too. Converts that came from a Jewish background were being complained against by those from a Grecian background because those of one racial group felt that they were being ignored and it looks like it was the case in this daily distribution of food. So the church was handing out food to its needy members, but one group was apparently being neglected. It says, verse 2, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you, from among you, who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this what? We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from the Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So notice here some key observations. One, there was a, a need existing within the church. They were meeting the need, but not everyone was being properly addressed. They didn't just say, well, that's good enough. The apostles immediately convened a meeting of all the disciples, so the whole church got involved. And the apostles simply said, hey, we have to devote ourselves to teaching, and we can't ourselves be involved in making sure food is being distributed and handed out and going from house to house. But they basically said, choose from among you people that can take care of this. And we will turn, verse 3, this responsibility. That's our pivotal word today. We find in Scripture responsibility towards supporting evangelists and supporting benevolent situations from among the church. Look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We read this a lot before the collection. Here we find a need existed outside the area of the Corinthian church. There were these needy Christians in the area of Jerusalem. Apparently there was a famine, history tells us, in Jerusalem. Corinth was far away, but they were given instruction, hey, you ought to help out this situation if you can. Verse 1. 
He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So other churches were told to do this. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Then when I give letters, then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift where? To Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So here what we find that a collection being taken, instruction had already been given to the church. He's just repeating it. In Corinth, he said to the church of Galatia, I said to do this, take a collection on the first day of the week. And the purpose was not just to give to give, but so that when Paul arrived on the scene, they wouldn't have to all of a sudden hastily gather an adequate amount of money to take down to Jerusalem. So there's a purpose even in this weekly giving so that you would have this amount saved up. But then he says he's going to Jerusalem. That's where the money was going to go. So here we find support for the idea of churches sending their money to other places, to other needy Christians to help them out with their benevolent needs. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 established that as well. So here's our main point of foundational thought. The two areas where we find church collected funds going is one, to evangelism or teaching outside the church or within, and benevolent needs within the church or members outside the members of the church that are in other churches or part of other churches, whether it be in within a country or outside the country. These are all legitimate places to use money. But they weren't just giving to giving or not just sending money any and everywhere. It was to specific situations and it was to needy Christians. Individual Christians had no such limitations or restrictions. Individuals can give their money anywhere, to any cause, any political cause, any um, benevolent cause. But church-collected funds were always used in the New Testament for needy Christians inside or outside the church. <clears throat> okay, second area we'll talk about this morning is that financial support involves following biblical instruction, examples, and using good judgment. We've just given a lot of time to the idea of biblical instructions is important, to know where our collected funds are to go to. We look at what the apostles said to do, and we also look at examples of what churches did in the first century that had the apostles telling them what to do. So those are approved examples. But then eventually, just simply good judgment has to be exercised. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Thank you, Ralph. I do have a bottle of water here. I'm just too lazy to go over and get it. And, uh, but thank you. You're trying to head off the situation you saw last week. I appreciate that. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Um, we'll just look at, for time's sake, I'm going to make a judgment teacher call real quick. When I'm teaching at school, I rarely have time to teach everything I'd planned. So on the fly... As I know the bell is going to ring, um, I'm just going to read part of this. But the good thing about 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, it gives extensive teaching about how churches were to administer funds and the way they were look, to look at even the gathering of those funds. So remember, we already looked at 1 Corinthians 16. The church had been told to collect funds 
so that when Paul arrived, he could take those funds with some other brothers that were traveling down to Jerusalem and then distribute them. Apparently, the Corinthian church had got off to a good start with this, but they kind of stopped collecting funds, and they'd kind of got distracted with other things. So what Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is trying to revive them. But notice how he does it. He doesn't do it with guilt. He doesn't do it with, hey, you, you signed a contract saying you have to give a certain amount every week. Or he, talks, he will talk about free will offerings. That all church collected funds are to be free will offerings, not mandatory fees or anything like that. He will bring up specific need, which we've seen consistently already. And he'll also bring up judgment decisions. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 5 through 9. I'm just going to pick out some of these. But if you read the entire chapter 8 and 9, you'll really be blessed to get the full context. Let's look at the idea of free will offerings, verse 5 through 9. Uh, We'll start at verse 3, actually. Verse 3. Let's start at verse 1. I can do that. 1 through 9 in chapter 8. He says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of their very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. Verse 3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were, what? Able. And even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own. Verse 4, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they went beyond our expectations, having given themselves, first of all, to the Lord. They gave themselves by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he is rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the beginning. We'll just pause here. This is the beginning of Paul trying to rally the Corinthians to giving again. He's talking about the Macedonians, other churches or churches in another area that had been given funds. They gave it uh, as much as they were able, but even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. You will find no place in the New Testament where elders or preachers were ever telling the church, hey, you got to give a certain amount every week. This is your commanded amount, which was kind of like a fee. There are no membership fees in the church, anything like that. These collected funds were simply free will offerings to meet needs within the church. A tithing was a principle of the Old Testament. Israel, as they were traveling to the promised land, did have to give a mandatory tithe, which was simply part of their animals, a part of what they owned to maintain the service of the temple, maintain the support of priests. Tithing is clearly there under the first covenant. But a mandatory amount every week is not found in the New Testament in the early church. 
simply free will offerings. So that is one area, free will offerings. You'll see that in the rest of chapter 8 and 9. The second thing you'll see is specific need. We saw that in Acts. We see that in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Let's look at chapter 8, verse uh, 14. We'll start at verse 13. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be an equality. Verse 14, At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. This word need keeps rising to the surface. In all these texts that deal with giving, they were giving to specific things they knew about that had been established as needs. They were not questioned. They weren't guessing whether or not there was really a need there. They were giving towards things that were established as needs, and Paul brings that out in these specific places. But then there are also judgment decisions. There are also judgment decisions. I just want to go to 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is a very interesting text. Again, I recommend reading 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 at home on your own to validate these principles that we're talking about. But this is a very specific example of Timothy, who was a preacher, working with churches in the area of Ephesus. We find at the beginning of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, that's where Timothy was. Paul is writing to him. And in chapter 5, he gives extensive instruction on how the church collection is to be used in one area. Verse 3 beginning, 1 Timothy chapter 5. <clears throat> he says, Give proper attention or recognition to those widows who are really in what? Really in need. There's that word again. It keeps showing up. He says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren... These should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by doing what? Caring for their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Let's pause here into verse 4. So notice here in the church, if there was a needy widow, who is first responsible if that widow has family? The family. He says, give attention, though, or proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, those without anyone else to take care of them. Verse 5, the widow who is really in need and left all alone, there it is, left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. So let's pause at verse 7. So here, Widows who are really in need that were devoted to God, that were to be supported. But if someone really, really had no faith and they were just nominally collected to the church and, and they really weren't living a responsible life, Paul is saying here, they are not to be just automatically supported. So these are judgment calls. How do you determine who's really in need and who is not? Both were within the church. Verse 8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So clearly there is a first line of responsibility, family. Family takes care of family. Then the church 
can take care of people that are left alone without anyone to take care of them. Verse 9, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60. She has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. We'll just pause here. This makes the point. Here, judgment calls have to be exercised. He doesn't tell them, okay, you help this widow, help that one. You determine who is left all alone without help, who has family within the church that can and should take care of the situation. That is a judgment call. So throughout the New Testament, in the area of church collection, first we find free will offerings, no mandatory giving. Second, you find specific needs always being addressed, either evangelism or benevolent needs. And then three, judgment decisions having to be exercised. This text we skipped, chapter 8, Paul talks about there being other Christian men that had been given approval that were going to carry this financial gift to Jerusalem. The point being that they weren't just going to let just anyone travel with this large sum of money. The right people had to administer it and to make sure it stayed safe and that there, there's no charge of misusing the money or taking it for personal gain. And that's where the timelessness in the New Testament is. Just like money has to be secure and there has to be people that are trusted to take care of it today, same thing true 2,000 years ago. I want to end with just some applications. The Lake Merced Church and Collected Funds. Here's how all this kind of comes down to us. First of all, I want to look at some common challenges, and each one of these is going to be very brief. <clears throat> There's some challenges that all churches face. All churches that are trying to be faithful to the Bible and follow what there's to do, all are going to have to deal with this. And then there's some things that are simply unique to us here at Lake Merced. Doesn't mean it's bad, it's just really a unique thing. First of all, money is always going to be a sensitive subject. <laughs> money is always a sensitive subject. People have their own individual ways of dealing with money. Some people budget, some don't. Some are freewheeling in their spending, some are still balancing their checkbooks, and they don't do anything that involves a little extra money. So when that comes into churches making decisions, you have all kinds of people with different perspectives on money coming in. There can be some what? Some disagreements. Doesn't mean anyone's right or wrong sometimes, but there can be some judgment disagreements. Secondly, all churches have both resources, but they also have responsibilities. So there's resources and responsibilities. It's not just you're giving money out to anyone that asks. But you still need to be generous. So you have the, these balancing principles of generosity and responsibility always at work, which are always going to provide healthy discussions on who do we help, when do we help them, how much do we help them, how long do we help them. Generosity and responsibility are always going to be kind of in a healthy way working with each other. <clears throat> All churches are regularly asked for assistance or made aware of needs. There's never been a time, whether it be as a trustee here or as a full-time gospel preacher as I was uh, years back, that there were not requests coming in through email or being brought to my attention as a preacher. Not in a nuisance way, but simply there's always going to be some kind of need or at least a request 
that you have to deal with on some level. All churches deal with this. All preachers are constantly involved in this because a lot of times they're the first one to answer the phone <laughs> or the emails come to them because someone found their address. Uh, four, under the common challenges, we need to make judgments about how and when to help. Judgments involve wisdom, involve investigating the situation, involve questioning, uh, maybe some in a difficult way and kind of probative questions. I guarantee you, when you buy a house, uh, the bank's underwriting department, they will know everything about you, including the name of your dog, before they're going to let you borrow money. Uh, you try buying a car, getting a loan, you're going to be asked a lot of stuff. I don't want to tell them all that. Well, if you don't want to tell them all that, you're not going to get any money. And notice here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there were some pretty strict criteria on when certain groups within the church that some might say, well, let's give it to all the widows. Well, Paul looked at that a little different. Did they qualify? And that was not to be mean. It was simply to exercise wisdom and responsibility with limited funds. Uh, church members can and should be involved in the decisions. Remember Acts chapter 6, when certain widows were receiving part of the daily distribution of food and others were not? Even the apostles didn't just gather together and have an apostles meeting. They got all the disciples together. Some situations have to be addressed by the entire church. So sometimes we will have congregational meetings where we'll bring everyone in. Hey, this is something where everyone should be involved. All churches should be doing this and usually do. And if they don't, they usually suffer the consequences. You need all the people on board. You need everyone buying into how the money's being used. And if you have just one small group, even elders that are not telling anyone anything, that's simply not a biblically healthy situation. Communication is always good if done properly. Uh, and this is an interesting common challenge at the very bottom that we face 2,000 years removed from the New Testament. Many needs today are also met by tax dollars. Insurance, governmental programs, GoFundMe accounts, and things like that. In the first century, they did not have any of these things. It was either family or the church. Did you catch that in 1 Timothy 5? Family has the first responsibility. Then the church can take up responsibility. There were no such things as welfare, social security, uh, today, the latest thing is GoFundMe. A lot of times, people that come into financial problems because of a sudden illness and they were not insured, there'll be these online accounts where people can send money, where it be $5 or 5000 and then people collect it and give it to someone. So these are all kinds of other means of people getting help, which calls for even more judgment on the part of churches because they're not the only source of help. Uh, the poor person that's car burned up on the street early this morning. Even though our first thought might be, hey, how can we help them out and get a car? Well, they probably had insurance. Um, they probably have family. If they don't have any of those things, then if they're part of the church here, let's say, we would, then we would see what can the church do to help. But there are other ways that people are helped today. That doesn't mean we don't help. That's not my point. But there are other levels of help, maybe the best thing we do is help them access that they already can access. They don't know how to do it or maybe uh, make sure that things they can be getting and are paying for through their taxes are coming to them. That's using judgment. Let's look at, finally at some unique challenges of, of Lake Merced and then we'll be finished. <clears throat> First of all, for Lake Merced, this is just a reality. I think most of us already know that. 
from our congregational meetings. Most of the Lake Merced Church of Christ funds come from rental agreements. If you just looked at our balance sheet of money coming in, and this is available through this annual, most of our resources come from the rental agreements we have for parking and the New North arrangement. But most of our own church giving goes towards supported or supporting church operations. The amount we spend to support those who preach the gospel here, to support Nathaniel and his work, and even to take care of benevolent needs for the most part. And correct me if I'm wrong. For the most part, stays within the monthly amount that we're given. Now, when we want it, like we're going to have the parking lot paved, we're probably going to need to put a roof. The money that will be spent on that may come outside of the monthly given here. But as far as our just immediate things that we do here to support in our internet service, all those things, we're generally meeting ourselves. But if we are to fully support a preacher here, like we did Josh at some point, that's going to take money outside of what we are giving, and that's a unique challenge for us. Where and when do we use these rental funds, which even among the trustees is a challenging thing we have to deal with. Um, number three, trustees will be transparent about church funds. We don't put out, hey, here's all the money and here's where it's coming from and so that anyone can see it. Someone that's got shady thoughts about what to do with it, but any member can always have access to exactly where the money is going, how it's being spent. Nathaniel has meticulous records where you can see it down to the very penny, where things are being spent. So nothing should ever be hidden by a church, or never, never is it something for just one group to see and no one else can look at it. Um, in the future, our congregational meetings will focus on the use of funds, not only because we have the opportunity, but we have the responsibility, as the church did in Acts 6, to include everyone in how the money is being used that is collected by the church. And then finally, our challenge as Lake, the Lake Merced Church will always be to use funds biblically. What are the areas that are biblical? Being generous, but also being what? Being generous, but being wise. Wise does not mean stingy. Wise does not mean being restrictive and using just the way we personally see money and trying to control it doesn't mean controlling, but wise means using what we've learned throughout life. We've all learned a little bit here about money, about sincerity, genuineness of need. We just need to apply that and not be driven by guilt. Just because someone asks for money doesn't mean you just give them money. It can even be counterproductive sometimes to do that. I mean, hurting that person. Not hurting the church, but hurting that person. So wisdom has to be used. But clearly, generosity should be a driving force within the church. We haven't addressed everything today, but I think we've hit a lot. And feel free to talk to me more about these things. We will probably have a church discussion at some point about these things, because nothing is to be hidden. There's no secret topics. and There's no thing that only one person controls here. So hopefully this will give some guidance to how we see the use of our money. But money's important. Money does things. One person said it makes the world go round. That may be an excessive comment. But money facilitates things being done. 
And within a church, the money that you give or the money that you set aside yourself to be available should some need come up, that's a big deal. That's important. And being ready to let loose of that money when the time comes, that's a big deal to do that. And that's an example of surrendering all or sacrificing. Some do it weekly. Some are there ready to go. When the moment calls, they give of themselves. And may God bless us with not only the resources, but the opportunity to glorify him in this place. And may he bless us with judgment on how to do that properly.